You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here, bringing back one of our favorite guests, 2013 fellow Neil Spears, longtime board member. We're in his house because we like doing things live with him. He's got a lot of updates since we talked to him last. We also have to commiserate about our baseball teams. Let's get to it. Yeah, so the last time we talked was in the World Series last year. I grew up in Houston, Astros fan. You grew up in LA, Dodgers fan. Uh, I came out on top, but then both of us struggled this year. Uh, we hate the Red Sox, I think. What was your feeling like this year? Those Red Sox. Yeah. Those Red Sox. They just uh, annihilated us. But look, if you're going to go out, you might as well go out by the team that wins it all. That is true. Yeah. Did you go to any of the games during the playoffs? No. Uh, Listen to them on the radio, actually, which made me feel a little bit uh, uh, who's old Who's doing the broadcast on the radio? It's Charlie Steiner and okay. Rick Monday. Oh. I mean, it's fine. Yeah, Steiner's been around fine. a long time. Yeah. So what's it like having... Yeah, were you more invested, less invested this year? Because in theory... Uh, World Series don't come around very often, but back to back. So were you more interested now that it's 30 plus years not winning? It's interesting. I felt a little um, distracted by the world, (laughs) more distracted (laughs) by the world this year than last year, Uh, but still just as excited for the Dodgers to to bring it home. Yeah, like you said, would have been the first time in 30 years. It's also weird to have, uh, go to the World Series two years in a row and then to feel like like the season was a failure, right? Yeah. Who goes back to back to the World Series and then calls that a failure? Unless we uh, said for low expectations, that's true. Yeah. Uh, when they're already high and then you whiff, it's even more painful. Yeah. All right. So speaking about the world, part of the reason I wanted to chat with you, so you switched jobs as well since yeah. the last time the Dodgers lost the World Series. Right? <laughs> uh, give us a scoop about where you were briefly and then where you are now. Yeah. So uh spent the last eight years uh, leading the California regions of Power My Learning, which is an education nonprofit. Uh, and then uh, this summer transitioned to a new role at the Silver Lake Independent Jewish Community Center. I'm their new executive director. And so we talked a little bit while you were considering options. What eventually was the main one or two reasons why you made the switch? Yeah. I mean, I feel like in the world today, there is so much uh, disconnection happening. We are in our phones. Uh, now my phone even tells me how much time I'm spending on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we've got a ton of social media going on. But there's not, there aren't a ton of places where people really connect with each other and really see each other, really build the kind of relationships that help folks you know, celebrate the highest highs and get through the lowest lows. And in my mind, a community center at its best does those things. It builds the kind of in-person relationships that the internet and our Facebooks and our Instagrams cannot replicate. And there's a huge need for that. I think maybe a bigger need now than ever. And we'll get some of the immediate challenging things that you face, but logistically, I know a lot of people in the alum community are making these kind of pivots now. They're going to lead organizations or they're leading one and they go lead another one. Yeah. Logistically, what did you find when you went to the new place in terms of like staff size or people who've been there a long time or short? Like what's the actual process like when you take a big leap like that? Yeah. Well, part of the, the process for me actually started before leaving. Um, you know, uh, the person who took over for me, Katie Roth at uh, Power My Learning, had been there for a long time and I'd, you know, been planning a train, you know, bringing her along so that she would be ready uh, to take over when I left. So that was the precursor to allowing me to even feel like I could look. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, like, coming to a new place um, was amazing in that I had a pretty good transition from the previous leader, mm-hmm. and I lucked out in that regard. I'm not sure all leadership transitions go as smoothly as this one then did, but Ayanna Morse, who was my predecessor at the Silver Lake JCC, uh, really set things up for me to be successful. The budget's a lot bigger. Uh, the staff is a lot bigger. Mm. We, um, 
we've got uh, about 50 people on oh, yeah. the team. Okay. Uh, and uh, on top of that, you know, in my previous role, I was leading a region, but there was still a CEO ab- mm. above me and a board that had the fiduciary responsibility. In this job, it's, uh, it's the buck stops with me. All right which is a, a huge opportunity uh, and it cuts both ways. It's a lot of responsibility, but it's also tremendous fun. So then when you were negotiating coming on, knowing your weaknesses and knowing your strengths, how does that, how does that even sound as you're working with the new future employer? What ways are they trying to help you or what ways are you trying to like, I got to figure this out if they're. Yeah. I mean, right. I think that most places are pretty invested in trying to make the, the transition as easy as it can be. Uh, so the way that manifested for me was as soon as, you know, the offer letter got signed, I started meeting regularly with the outgoing executive director, uh, talking about the things that you can't talk about in a job interview, but that you can talk about during a transition, like staff roles and budget things and um, uh, other issues that are behind the scenes. Uh, so, you know, if I had advice to give for people who are looking to make a transition on our, you know, given the opportunity to take on a bigger leadership role, I would uh, I would definitely recommend spending as much time as they you know as you can um, with the outgoing leader. That for me was uh, was really really key. Um, and then accepting the fact that there are just going to be some rocky moments. There are going to be a lot of things that uh, you got to figure out as you go, which is definitely the case with me too. Yeah. Okay. So then once you're there, within how many days before the tragedy at Trader Joe's happened? In yeah. It was a it's is a wild beginning. So. Uh, I started uh, in the middle of July, uh, and uh, that Saturday, uh, which was my sixth day on the job, uh, there was the domestic violence incident that then spilled over into the Trader Joe's in Silver Lake. Uh, And the gunman went in and held a ton of people hostage uh, inside the grocery store. Uh, (laughs) Sixth day on the job. So uh, immediately, uh, I'm on text chains and uh, and calls with our senior leadership, uh, with our incoming board chair. And we, we come to realize that we have community members inside the Trader Joe's, including uh, a guy who was there with his preschooler, another community member who we later learned uh, helped people hide in the walk-in freezer. Hmm. Uh, and it was uh, both terrifying and also uh, a moment where we, as a leadership team, knew that we had an opportunity to do something. So I think... The vision um, that I have and that, that, that the board shares uh, for the JCC is that it's a place not only of gathering, but also a place that's um, imbued with healing hmm. and is a place where people can really be seen. What better opportunity is there to have people be seen than after this kind of crisis? So we immediately decided we had to open our doors uh, and had to open our doors in a way that was not let's come rally, but rather let's come heal. Let's come see each other. Let's sing. Let's hear from some of our electeds. Let's connect with Moms Demand Action because gun violence uh, and the easy access to guns was definitely played into what happened. Um, And cry if we need to cry and fight when we need to fight, but really just to to be together. Um, So we put that together within 24 hours of that incident. Um, and it turned out to be a pretty uh, big crowd and uh, and well-received. And for you personally, what's the hardest part? Is it, is it, knowing you as long as I know you, the empathy part isn't the hard part or the being a people person isn't the hard part. Yeah. But in a moment where you're all of a sudden thrust into a crisis leader situation, what was that most challenging part skill-wise? Yeah, uh, if I'm going to be honest about it, the hardest part is separating out my own processing and my own emotions from having to hold space for, for others and for community. Um, 
And since the Trader Joe's incident, I sadly had a few more crises happen. So I've had to learn how to flex that muscle of having my own reaction, um, but putting the processing in a little box for a second so that I can make space as a communal leader to care for my community. That's something I'm still learning how to do. Um, Because if I don't end up then going and processing the emotions later, that's not good news either. Uh, But that's hard. When we come back, we'll talk more about the leadership uh, crisis skills that Neil now has more than he had anticipated when he started. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sag. We'll be right back. So after things had, um, after a couple of days had gone by, did anyone give you any feedback that was positive or negative from the experience? And, and how did you receive both of those types of feedback? Yeah. Uh, after, after the Trader Joe's uh, incident, all the feedback was positive. There was such um, appreciation for uh, the space that we created. Um, you know, we did have electeds from from the city, from the county, from the state um, who were there. Appreciation from their staffs and stronger relationships with them. So, very positive feedback from from that. Um, and uh, for the people who were in the store, and for our community members who shop at the store and who were feeling, you know, the sense of, uh, of, of trauma from it, even for the folks who weren't there, a real appreciation for uh, the ability to process. Yeah, I didn't, uh, remarkably, uh, there was no negative feedback. Okay. Yeah. Which is strange because it's a Jewish institution, you know. But <laughs> An opinion my, or two. My people are known for their opinions. Um, but uh, that's how it ended up. So then what transpires in your organization and, and with the group when a tragedy like Pittsburgh happens, um, and you guys are obviously a long way away mileage-wise, but yeah. very close at heart to the folks that are, are in that place of worship, uh, how did you, how did you respond tactically? And then what actually were the things where you were, you're feeling and trying to heal there? Yeah. Yeah. Pittsburgh was, was rough. It was a, a Saturday morning, um, just a few weeks ago, uh, gunman storms into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and, uh, and kills, kills a bunch of folks while they're, while they're praying. Uh, it hit the community pretty hard, uh, because it's, um, it's scary to feel targeted. It's scary to, to see Jews in our country, uh, get killed in a place that has Jewish on the wall. And our place has Jewish on the wall. Even though we're not a synagogue, uh, it's a place where Jews gather. And so the initial reaction was one of, of fear, I would say, uh, and, and rightly so. Uh, we actually were hosting an event uh, that afternoon. Uh, we were having a, a gathering, a family-oriented gathering. We sing and have a good time. And uh, pretty shortly after the shooting, we decided we were gonna con- you know, carry on with that program. Um, partly on the advice of the security folks and the LAPD who were not tracking any active threats uh, against our institution or, or other Jewish institutions in LA. Had there been a threat, of course, we would have changed that. But uh, we, we decided to carry on because continuity and giving people a sense of normalcy is important in moments of crisis. And uh, I got to call the LAPD and they sent over a car and some officers to, to reassure us and, and check out the place. Um, the LAPD was wonderful, keeping an extra eye on our campus over the, the following days after uh, after what happened in Pittsburgh, most of my job um, revolved around, you know, refining our security strategy, making sure that our security was up to snuff. And then even more than that, holding space for community members who were, uh, who were scared and who were hurting and who were dealing with um, trying to process what it meant, what it means now to be alive in a country where, you know, just last year, Nazis marched in Charlottesville with their hoods off during the daytime and, and a person was killed. And now we have this mass shooting. 
um, it's a lot to deal with. And there are folks in your community asking for more politicized action, taking uh, a route of, of changing elected officials. Are they taking a different approach of community organizing non-Jewish communities? Like, what are you seeing? What are you getting requests for? The, the answer is yes to all of that. Okay. Um, it's the whole spectrum. Um, there are a lot of requests for additional security, a lot of requests for more hardening of the building, more guards, more fill in the blank. I think that is largely from a place of, you know, people feeling vulnerable. Um, and then there's also the activism piece. Um, what can we do to control guns? Because mm -hmm. again, the easy access to guns is what fuels. Um, it's what enable the, the combination of easy access to guns with white nationalism is what fuels attacks um, like what happened in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, so there are definitely folks. We host um, Moms Demand Action. They use our space um, at the Silver Lake JCC. Um, uh, so we've been active with them uh, in, in, in doing actions as well. You know, the other piece of this that's difficult is um, is the the intersectional nature of the Pittsburgh shooting because the the shooter you know came in to a synagogue and killed people. That's that's anti-Semitism. But part of the reason that he did it, he was he was animated by the the community's support for the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which I'm supports yeah. immigrants, right? <laughs> like so so this this the white nationalism that drove him. Uh, you know, anti-Semitism is a part of that core, but so is racism and xenophobia and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia. These things are all connected. And one of the things that I've also been trying to do in our community, and I think many Jewish leaders are trying to do, is help our community see that this is not an isolated incident of anti-Semitism. It's actually a connected, um, it's connected to white supremacy and white nationalism, which means that we need to be in coalition with mm -hmm people of other religions, with our multi-faith, with our multi-racial coalitions um, uh, to actually address the root causes of what's happening here. So I fear that if Jewish institutions just use Pittsburgh as an excuse to turn inward, uh, we, will be, we will be completely missing the point of what's actually going on in the world right now. And the majority of your LA time, you know, when you're teaching, you're in South LA, East LA, when you're with Paramount Learning, what this surprised you about the Silver Lake community because I'm sure you occasionally would bump into that. But what's been the most interesting thing that you've yeah. about that group? Yeah, people? it's so funny. You know, spending almost my whole career in uh, schools and low-income communities, I know Watts and Inglewood and Pacoima right. and Boyle Heights a lot better than I know Silver Lake. Yeah. So now I get to get to know Silver Lake, which turns out to be an incredibly interesting place. Uh, it is a place that has undergone tremendous gentrification over the past, you know, decade or so, a uh, couple decades. It's a place that um, still retains a significant amount of diversity, both income, racially, uh, in other ways. Uh, and it's a place that also is teetering more towards um, uh, an affluent place. Um, it's a very creative place. Uh, it's a very, um, it's a place that is very hot right now. Um, and it's fun to work in a neighborhood that feels like there's a lot of energy uh, and a lot of creativity um, while also having some significant issues like housing, like yeah. homelessness, like how do we prevent people from being displaced? All the all the things that the whole city is dealing with. Yeah. It's interesting during NLC selections, right? So every year we do a group interview experience part and there's an article that folks discuss. And so the one we picked this year, I don't have a chance to saw it, but um was around housing. So it was a Curb LA article where they found five folks who had recently bought a home. So that basically was the frame of the thing. And it turned out in the article, the majority of the homes were bought in places where 
the demographic of the person talking about home buying was not a match with the community that was already there. Yeah. So for us, it was a great article because housing is top of mind for so many folks. But then there was underneath this, this surface level article was some just kind of interesting read was all the intersectional things that you talked about in terms of uh, system inequality leading to wealth. Gathering ability lets you ask mom for the down payment support or rally the troops to get you into a home. Um, yeah, the, you've been this, you know, I bring it up because we're in a home now that you yeah. own and you've been a <laughs> for a while. Like, how has that changed your perspective as you engage with communities in, in LA having that, that perspective now? Yeah, uh, perspective as a homeowner. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible privilege that most folks in the city don't get the opportunity to have. I think that for me, there's a responsibility that comes with living in a neighborhood, whether you own, whether you rent, uh, there's a responsibility to the people you live around and live with. I think that responsibility is maybe is, is even higher when you don't share the racial or socioeconomic, uh, backgrounds of the majority of the folks in your neighborhood. So for me, that's meant, um, making sure that I'm checking myself and, uh, and my assumptions when I come home, um, it's making sure that I'm providing uh, my community in Silver Lake opportunities to engage with those kinds of questions. We had a, a really interesting panel discussion about gentrification on the east side at the JCC uh, just a month ago. So those, I think, are part of the responsibility that um, has to come along with owning a home in the city. Hmm. Give us some things to keep an eye on in L.A. since you're plugged into the city. Your place yep. of growing up, of love, of baseball, <laughs> love of all things. What kind of things should we keep an eye out for? Yeah, I mean, 2019. one of the things that I'm really interested in uh, is actually the school board election that's coming oh, up. Geez. There's a special election. Uh, and how, for, many, how many candidates are going to be I in that think race? 17, 17 at last check. I mean, not all of them will be able to get the signatures to be on the ballot, but yeah. uh, it's going to be really interesting. We actually have a number of community members from the Silver Lake JCC. Oh, so who the, have, board, uh, the board district kind of comes up closer. Yeah, it sure does. So we're going to host a a candidate forum uh, uh, in, in partnership with the League of Women Voters, um, I hope sometime in January. So that's something I'm really uh, looking forward to and seeing how that election plays out uh, is going to be fascinating, especially given that it's on the heels of this these midterms, which sure. I think had historic turnout in California for a midterm. Yeah, it's close I think to 50%, 51%. Yeah. 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 Um, on the candidate forum part, it's interesting. For those that don't follow his education as closely, Neil and I do. So Board District 5 has an MTC because the board member there resigned and he had more uh, support and backing in the Southeast cities. So like Huntington Park, Maywood Bell, like those areas of the district, because it's a uniquely weirdly shaped district. Yeah. Cause it also bumps up to, I think Highland Park area. Yeah. And a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, like, so much different demographics, much different uh, engagement points with, with schools. How do you see, are you going to moderate this panel? Cause I can see <laughs> you having one set of folks you want to lobby for. And then maybe hearing a different message based on where the, the form is. We're, we're just providing the space. League of <laughs> Women Voters is going to do all of the moderating and question asking. We're just providing the space. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever think about running for school board? That's a great question. Um, sure. Yeah. That was my ELP question. That's true. Actually, uh, when I was uh, a fellow. What board district are you? Nick's? Board district one. Who is no, that? Uh, McKenna. Oh, McKenna's. Oh, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be an interesting race. How many votes do you think you need to win? Board district seat these oh, days. Oh gosh, I don't know. I wonder in general how that's going to change with because they moved that school board elections to match up. Better. Oh, that's right. That was one of the things that so passed. Turnout will be such a different animal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder how that changes 
in one direction or another. Well, and in the special election for Board District 5, there's going to be, you know, 14 people who vote total. Right, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, one the number, candidate. Yeah, yeah, the number of votes you need is going to be, I think, smaller because uh, the turnout, I, I imagine, will be pretty low. That's going to be wild. So that's something I'm looking forward to. The other thing, you know, another thing I'm looking forward to in 2019 is just um, the continued work around uh, about around gun violence, which has touched, I think, so many communities um, so deeply, Silver Lake included and the JCC included. Um, I'm also really excited to see what comes out of this new Congress. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you followed any of Alexander Ocasio-Cortez? Uh, of course. Man. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine. There's, I think this happens so much with Barack. You, if you ascend fast enough from relative obscurity to not relative obscurity, which he's definitely a, a big name now, yeah. you can in some ways skip the consulting programming that takes away your authenticity mm-hmm. and you just act like you would have acted the day before, yeah. but then the next day you just happen to be in Congress. Yeah. And she's totally just like every 28, she would be like an NLC applicant. It's like yeah. somebody would totally recognize and know, and there's never been a chance to, to change it in a good way. Yeah. Um, I just wonder how... I wonder a couple of things. I wonder how that will translate to policy things, yeah. which I'm encouraged about. But I also wonder what other folks are going to try to mimic that and then totally flame out and miss it. Like a consultant told me to be more authentic. It's not a good way <laughs> to be authentic. Yeah. Um, but people will see, you probably saw this better too, right? I was, was going to say, that's what it is. Facebook Live at Whataburger. You yep. see her making mac and cheese, talking about uh, primarying Democrats. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's what I should be doing. But yeah, those are actually, those. that's them. That's the people. Yeah. I wonder how it's going to play out. Yeah, when trying to figure out how to how to copy that. Yeah, yeah, same, right? Because the the presidential election is going to kick off in sort of its earliest phases, and then just oh, yeah, in right, a couple months. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who do you think is going to throw their hat in the ring? Oh think, gosh, I have no idea. Think anyone from California might be interested? Well, look, like the Eric, they have people always talk about Eric Garcetti. Yeah, and Kamala Harris. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll, well see. Are you thirty five yet? Almost. See, turn thirty five. <laughs> throw your hat in the ring. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, thanks. Listen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can find all past episodes, and there's a bunch, over 100 or so. Get them on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. And stay tuned. In early 2019, we're going to drop a whole bunch of Zag episodes at once that feature our new fellows. Nice. So we're actually recording those now. We'll get nice. a chance to know them. They're picked and selected, and we're excited to do the rollout for that in early January. So stay tuned. But until then, catch all past episodes in this one where you can. We'll talk to you later. 